And we are live with our 143rd episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Joined today by my lovely co-host, Stefan Edwards, at Logikill on Twitter. Twitter. Stefan, say hi. Hi. Uh, here we go. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to channel my inner uh, CK Tricky, my inner Ken there. He's got his whole... His whole layout all you know, smooth and yeah. Uh, as you may have noticed, uh, Ken is not joining us today. He is off gallivanting across, you know, some portion of I, I don't know somewhere in the world. Decided that he didn't love us enough to dial in from a from an airport restroom or something like that, like Logic Hill would. Um, I, yeah, that's great. Called from the backs of police cars and whatnot, you know? Exactly, yeah, exactly. It takes real dedication to, to maintain such a high-quality, you know, entertaining podcast, that's all. <laughs> um, the last week has been very eventful, both, both uh, personally and across the industry. Obviously, this last week was DEF CON and Black Hat. And I'll be honest, I still feel a little hungover from everything because it's been, um, uh, yeah, for those of you that don't know, I help out with uh, DEF CON, the Hacker Tracker app, and we do all the scheduling and updates and events. And I always feel like I'm playing catch up when I get done with the conference because I don't actually watch a lot live as I'm trying to maintain. Like if you've ever organized a conference, you know that it, I, I mean, it's hard to to stay up with the talks when everything else is going on. So there's a couple of things that we did definitely want to talk about today. Um, some of the past history, specifically around application security, but feel free to dive into Slack or YouTube if you've got a specific talk or something like that that you want to bring up. I mean, you know, Stefan, I was going to ask you, uh, as you were not on site, what what was interesting to you outside of what we're going to talk about with HTTP2? Um, were there other things that popped up that were noticeable to you? Uh, so I haven't I haven't seen anything that was uh, really pressing for me. I think the the interesting thing was watching uh, Team Hashcat. Okay. Uh, you know, participate in CTFs. Uh, you know, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Unix Ninja. He's he's pretty active in Team Hashcat. So listening to the uh, the ups and downs of Triumph there, and 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 uh, you know the usual like um, the, the usual sort of undulations that you have during CTFs, where you're like, oh, this is going to be easy. Oh, nothing's going right. Like, oh, we're we're going to get it. Oh, shit, this is terrible. Like, you know, and and then finally seeing them come out on top. Uh, was was pretty pretty much the highlight of DefCon for me, as it usually is. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's fun to see friends participating in CTFs and whatnot there. So that that's usually what I'm most interested in from from DefCon. So, yeah. and I I mean, and the the events, right? If if no one's ever done DefCon before, that's that's one of the things that I highly recommend because you can catch all the talks. I just posted the list to the like the main stage talks from DefCon. Um, they always repost all that. Uh, you know, there's the media server. You can torrent it all, pull it all down, watch it at a later date. But the events that are ongoing and live are super interesting, right? Um, get involved. Try out try out your hand at a CTF. Right? Um, the last couple of years, I've, I've always jumped into like command and control or some of the AppSec ones, right? Um, rather than doing the full-blown, you know, DEF CON ones. Um, but it'd be interesting to see, did Hashcat do a write-up on that or have they even gotten to that point? I know it's it's early days yet after the conference. Yeah, I, I don't think they I don't think they generally do a full write-up. I'll I'll poke Unix Ninja and see, but I, I think they they generally just take it and and sort of like add things to Hashcat and and uh, add things to their toolkit there. It's really it's interesting to me because um, you know, as, as someone who works in red team, as, as someone who sometimes has to crack passwords, that's usually the, the team that I go to <laughs> for, <Yeah>. for cracking, <laughs> you know, so it's always interesting to see what gives them, uh, you know, what, what speed ups they have, what tooling they have, you know, um, so that's interesting. The other thing we're tracking internally at, at, at uh, GitHub, we were, we were talking about it. I think there were a couple like Dorothy talks or at least one Dorothy talk. Dor Dorothy is like a Kubernetes, uh, a tool. Uh, some of the some of the talks have been released prior to to Black Hat and DefCon, um, 
but uh, that was the that was the other big thing that I want to catch up on is like what what was talked about there, what was different from from previously released talks, what what's new there. I think there were a few Kate's talks and a few tools that were released. Um, Robert, who works on the red team with me, he he sent some links along to to new uh, you know new tools that we, we'll likely try out. So we have a, a backlog of tools as every year from DefCon gives, but you know it's that sort of thing for us really. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know like in the demo labs and it may have even been at um, Black Hat that Kubernetes Goat was released this year, right? Which mm-hmm. is that vulnerable um, install. I I don't know. I I still have these like weird, uh, a weird reaction to Kubernetes because most of the organizations I deal with, it's complete overkill, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well it's, which, which is fine, right? But what were you going to say? <laughs> no, I was going to say Jay Beal, who uh, uh, I don't know his title at InGuardians because it's, it's constantly Jay is some C level uh, position at at uh, at InGuardian, uh, usually like CTO or, or chief research officer or something like that. But Jay has uh, Busta Cube, which he released at, at KubeCon, I think, two years ago, and um, that's that's always an interesting. Uh, interesting training and interesting vulnerable uh, Kubernetes app as well for these sorts of things. And then, yeah, there were, there were a few different um, Kate's tools. I think it's, it's funny. I don't know if it would speak to uh, Kate's maturity, but I think it it comes, it speaks to, we keep seeing this thing over and over again. So people are now starting to get to, these are the vulnerable patterns. We no longer need to like watch Ian Coldwater's talks or, or, Chris Gates's talks on this sort of stuff. We just sort of want to have a framework to to pop Kate's boxes and that's it, or Kate Kate's clusters and that's it. You know, yep. yeah. So. I, I mean, the maturity has definitely come a long way, right? Um, it, you know, as as far as what I see, that I, I mean, I'm with you because that's a completely good thing. As because those that start to use it that maybe shouldn't, at least those patterns are established, and we don't have to to go down this whole all right, like, I mean, early days, it's, you know, back when mobile stuff first came out and everybody's just ripping it apart on their own, trying to figure out what's going on or web app days. Um, but um, I did get a question in Slack. They asked which uh, tools uh, you mentioned because they were lazy. You said Dorothy and what else? Oh, Dorothy, Dorothy is the big one that I'm, I'm looking for, but we, we were also tracking, like, uh, I was just looking it up on, in chat here. Uh, so we were looking at, uh, Zuthaka, which is a open source, uh, application designed to assist red team testing and, uh, cube striker was the other one, which is a blazingly fast security auditing tool for Kate's. Cube Striker, wow! Yeah, I, um, I can. I, I'll pull up. Uh, I'll pull. I found up. the GitHub for Cube Striker. If you can find the one for Dorothy and Dorothy, is interesting because that Dorothy is much more of a like holistic process. It's not necessarily for uh, just for for Kate's. I think Dorothy also has some work on on Okta too. Um, okay. You know. In fact, I may have. Yeah, it, it it's uh, it's uh, it does Okta stuff uh, using Dor. I'm just pulling it up using Dorothy for uh, Okta monitoring and detection. Um, so Dorothy, excuse me, is Okta SSO visibility, and then uh, there's a bunch of Kate's tools that I'll post here too. But okay, yeah, I'm dropping some of them in Slack for people, but we should put them in the YouTube channel as well because those are there. We go. I do see Dorothy. Yeah, I'm I'm pulling them up as we're as we're chatting. Yeah, we'll make sure to have all the links there for everyone. Oh, I did find it. Elastic stars are basically my new bookmarks. I I check those before I. Uh, I speak because oh, there, there we go. Uh, GitHub starts. Yeah, that, that's right. You have to keep you have to keep pumping GitHub now that you're a part of the Borg. No, it's it's not that. I've actually always used GitHub stars. I have uh, I have like 1,900 of them uh, because there's just so many interesting things there. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of like really interesting projects, and I end up scrolling through the feed uh, first thing in the morning. Bobby, who's also been on the podcast before, that was something he and I shared. It was like first thing in the morning is just scroll through what other people have starred and see what's up there, you know? Yeah. So. Well, that, that's what I'm looking at now. I'm looking at, you know, okay, where are your stars, man? That's, uh, I have now, now I'm going to have to go review it. I'm going to jump down a rabbit hole. There's, there's always new resources. Actually, Derek, that's probably one thing that you could add to your list of um, uh, 
Oh, what's your your Discord? Mm-hmm. I can't I can't remember the name off the top of my head. I'm sorry, I'm I'm failing you here. Um, Striker is there. Oh, get informed, right? It's probably some GitHub. There we go. Get informed. Yep. Uh, oh yeah. There's there's quite a bit. Uh, there's quite a bit of of uh, like digging and OSINT that we that can be done and should be done in in uh, in GitHub repos currently. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, that's in there as it is, right? Um. Yeah. So there's Dorothy stuff, some Kubernetes goat. Oh, I forgot to include that other one in there. Let me pull that last yeah, one. Striker is really interesting too. I mean, all of the goat uh, applications are are fairly fascinating. I, I think, uh, like Cube Goat, I haven't I haven't looked deeply at it, but it looked a lot closer to what you would actually see. I, I think like Goat, like uh, OWASP Goat back in the day, was not very close to what you would actually see in a lot of applications. No, 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 it was like so. Like, go here, click this. Look what happened, right? Right, right. Juice Shop definitely improved that. Juice Shop was actually what you would see in an Express application. And I I think Kate's Goat uh, is is relatively close to what you would see. Although I I didn't dig in and see if they they were doing something, uh, you know, silly in there to to facilitate this. But it's it's nice to see that there's vulnerable Kate's deployments because I I think that was the biggest thing. If you wanted to do this before, it was like stand-up cop, uh, walk through cops and, and see what's broken there. Um, and there's all sorts of directions you can go with these sorts of things. And it's, it's nice to see this. It would also be interesting to see like vulnerable, uh, you know, at, like AKS, j- vulnerable Azure uh, Kubernetes service, that vulnerable, like, you know, GKS, that sort of thing. Uh, because I think and hope most of the places you're going to see it are in cloud services rather than yeah. you know, on-prem deployments. And, and that's what I would expect, right? Yeah, I mean, that's where I've seen it as it hasn't been somebody doing it locally. It's they're spinning it up in GKS or wherever else. And that's, I, I mean, I mean, there is, there are more nuances there, right? Like, because you are using Google or Amazon's infrastructure. Yeah. Anyway, I, the other thing that was interesting to me from a CTF perspective is the fact that, well, the ones that I was looking at in the AppSec space were all using AWS and uh, like the cloud infrastructure for all their deployments. Now there's not a lot that's self-hosted anymore. Um, Like they've, you know, everyone's gone cloud, even like CTFs um, across the board. I I know we've been moving that direction, but I don't think I hit anything that wasn't in Amazon at this point. Right. When I was looking at the different CTFs that I did, um, unless somebody else ran into, I, I don't think the, the main DEF CON CTF was hosted in Amazon, but, all the other sub ones, it, it just seems like the the logical place to put a lot of that. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's funny uh, because you probably won't have some of the accidental issues that you often have when you have CTFs there. Yeah, uh, you know, I I ran uh, quite a few CTFs, in fact, uh, you know, and it's always it's always challenging to make sure that you're actually doing the things that you want done in those uh, and hopefully cloud deployments will will fix some of those sorts of things you know with some more secure defaults uh, and also just not get pushed over right like that's always the other issue is so many people slam a CTF and then there, there's nothing uh, there's nothing left to, to access you know yeah and that's Oh, I don't know. It, like that's always the, the the big challenge there running the CTF. So it's it's a good thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, how many times have you restarted a box because it fell over because you only you know allowed for twenty threads or something like that? Something crazy. I, I think the worst one I ever had was um, I was running for uh, besides Charleston. Mm-hmm. Um, so Paul Kerr, uh, Reaper Hulk on on Twitter. He and I. Uh, wrote up this crypto CTF. Um, Paul did all the smart people stuff. I did the dumb people like wiring things together part. And um, we deployed it on Alpine and it it passed the initial sniff test. But mm-hmm. at the time, Alpine was still deploying with Libra and it was missing some core crypto functionality and Pi, uh, Pi cryptography um, just fell over. So like midway through, I realized that you couldn't solve some of the crypto. You couldn't actually yeah. solve the CTF right. with it. So I'm like standing up a new box, pointing it at new things, like blah, blah, blah. 
that that was that was honestly very funny. Uh, only because you know building open SSL and and deploying it was was so painful versus just like standing up a whole new instance and and going from there. You know. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's funny how still in this that uh, that was in 2019 or so, but it's still funny how. Uh, open SSL and, and compatibility bugs will will bite you hard uh, for for simple things like that. So, yeah. I, well, I mean, anybody who ever has ever tried to actually build any of the like open source apps from scratch on GitHub, well, you, you know, yeah, you'll know it, right? Like, d just go try to build something like Bitcoin on your own, you know, instance or something like that, and you'll run into. I'm sure some sort of confusion or uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Listen, well, no, no, we should all go back to the days of doing our own Gentoo builds, right? That's, no, uh, yeah. those, those days are long gone. It, it's, it's funny though. But speaking, how will you know what's in your court kernel there? I, I mean, honestly, at this point, uh, you know, I, I haven't run like a, a make config on, on, uh, on a Linux kernel in years. Honestly, it's probably been a good, a good 10 years since I've done that, you know? Well, okay. Well, that sounds like the next podcast that we have with you on is we're going to be like, how fast can Machikil build a no. kernel? <laughs> <laughs> I'll pull out the box that I, I still have it somewhere here. I'll pull out the box that I first did that on. It was like a, uh, a Pentium 120 <laughs> with like That's 32 megs of RAM, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it only took like three days to build, right? Yeah, That's, uh... yeah, yeah. I had a uh, a Sun Spark box. I remember I tried yeah. generating a a like twenty forty eight bit SSH key, and it was like three hours later it got enough entropy to, to put the key together. You know, <laughs> so, how do I how do I increase entropy on something where I only have a keyboard? Where's the cat? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was uh, it was quite awful, uh, you know. So I, I don't miss going back to those days, you know. No, so. no. I, I, sorry, I'm I'm dating both of us on today's podcast. We're talking That's about right. Spark stations and building our own Linux kernels, and yeah, when yeah. you were the dev when you were the CI/CD pipeline, right? That was the yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's 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 hilarious how far we've come. Like in some ways, in, in some ways, we've become much better but the way that we become better is, is terrible like we just ship a box to different locations and that's how we become quote unquote better <laughs> well no i i mean it is it, it's true right like you know we stand it up in the cloud but i even think about that from a um like a red team perspective like you know oh like what's what's the easiest way to get on somebody's network oh well here's a laptop right just go go plug this in and then you know, we'll, we'll get access to it, like physical access to that network or the VPN back. And we've, we've got a lot of novel solutions for solving that stuff, for sure, right? The stuff that's worked. Um, but we, we, we seem to, we tend to make the same mistakes. So this is almost also a good segue into HTTP2, right? Um, so maybe we, we dive into that, what the new research is from James Kettle this last week. Um, I mean, this was the one talk I had flagged because it is James Kettle, right? And he always puts a lot of good thought into things. Um, so let me post that up. But actually, before we do that, uh, let's, let's let's dial back to the original research that was done on HTTP2 because you brought up a couple of good um, talks that happened a couple of years ago yeah. that are related that, you know, James definitely builds on that and he's looking at it from, you know, the lens of all of the, you know, the recent attacks that he's been doing with cash poisoning and everything else. But um, can you talk to those initially? Like, let's drop one of those in there. Well, actually, before we get into that, there actually was just recently an article uh, where they shipped a, a red team, a base image of, uh, of their laptop and said, do whatever you can do from here. So a fairly common uh, like test style where you, you just ship uh, you know, ship a blank laptop. And that team detailed how they went from just like no creds, nothing but the laptop, which which is supposed to connect back to things uh, with the default image, all the way through to like detailed network access and everything there. I'll, I'll find it during during this. But it, it was funny. And it's always interesting to see those sorts of assessments where yeah. you you go from a base image. But um, the, the person I was thinking of is... Uh, Brett uh, Gravois, he spoke at NolaCon uh, in 2018. He did a talk on uh, HTTP2 and U, 
And then in 2019, he, he detailed uh, WAF bypasses using HTTP2. And it was, it was fascinating to me at the time because uh, Brett, um, I think he's crime bears on, on Twitter. Um, Brett was, um, was basically going around and seeing like what devices talk HTTP2 but don't actually do any filtering on HTTP2. Like they understand it and they can process it, but they do nothing uh, security-wise with it. And so it's it's fairly fascinating to see all of the things that, uh, you know, accept protocols. Like this was back in the day um, in the, like the, the noughties, um, it was like SC, uh, SCTP. Right, okay. be all these filters for for TCP/IP and UDP, and then you know stream control and transmission protocol would just be wide open, you know. So uh, or IPv6, there'd be all sorts of rules for IPv4 uh, and no rules for IPv6, and so you would exfil that way. So Brett did a Brett did sort of a holistic study of what accepts HTTP2, and then literally you know, provides no security on top of it. And it was, it was an interesting talk to see what he found actually broke there. Yeah. I, and like what I said about, you know, all things being new again, right? Like that, it definitely feels like we reinvent the wheel. You know, every time we have a new tech, a new protocol that comes out. Um, right. And I think that's what you're speaking to. The, that was one of the interesting things from James Kettle was this, this whole idea that, oh, we've got all these Nginx servers that are out there that are accepting HTTP2, but then they turn around and use HTTP1 to talk to the rest of the infrastructure. And, mm -hmm. you know, the downgrade attacks that happen there, you know, he's shoving HTTP1 definitions inside of that HTTP2 request. And then it's being processed on the back end because Nginx, yeah, I, I, I mean, just you can easily see how that happens. They're both plain text protocols. Um, there's nothing there that would prevent someone from doing it unless you're watching for it. And I think this goes back to the WAF bypass stuff that you're looking at as well, or IPv6, IPv4. I, I mean, you know, take your pick of protocol where we do this sort of, hey, everybody should upgrade to the new latest and greatest. Oh, wait, right? Like we, we haven't implemented firewall rules for, you know, X or this protocol. And all of a sudden you've exposed your entire network to new people coming in. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's 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 interesting too because it's actually used uh, like HTTP two is used quite a bit, right? So if you've ever seen gRPC, that's all HTTP two with with protobufs built on top of it. Um, you know, there's there's quite a few uh, quite a few apps are moving towards HTTP uh, two, you know, optimistically, right? And so there's a lot of exposure to HTTP two, and I don't think there really has been the sort of uh, the sort of like concerted research effort to see what breaks with it, what we don't understand about it and, and how we handle these sorts of things. And, and James did a great survey of like, this is what happens when you have an HCP2 edge that talks to an HCP1 internal side here. And it, it really did just seem like we're not treating the protocol correctly. We're not parsing things in ways that we should. We're not strict enough about a lot of these things. And it, it ends up with failures and edge cases there. Yeah. Yep. And that's the, I, I mean, you, you start digging into the research and that's exactly what we're looking at as those edge cases. We've, as developers, we have a tendency to make sure that functionality works. Um, but as security people, right, it's the edge cases that kill us. Um, and I, and I, I, don't, I don't know how to express that more succinctly, but this is, this, this goes back to the days, right? Like we, we start talking about fuzz testing and everything else that edge case testing that you and I like go off on, right? Whatever, like Ken calls it the crocs and socks of security, right? But um, it's all of these, like, I, I mean, the application, we're holistically thinking of application of like as a circle or, you know, of all the stuff that it does. But it's that the, the stuff, again, around the edge where we make the mistakes and we don't realize that it crosses a boundary, it crosses a trust boundary, it crosses a, you know, functional mm -hmm. boundary between two functions and, you know, introducing some variable in a, a non-standard way causes the application to crash or unintended consequences and they have security implications. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying it immensely. Right. Um, but I, I don't know how to push that further along. Right. I, you know, when I'm talking to developers, 
trying to get them to understand that they need to do this edge case testing. Um, I, I mean, do you have anything? I, I know you're doing more red team activities now, which is also a different set of edge cases, but like what, what sort of recommendations, recommendations do you have when you're talking to these developers to actually push that direction? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's honestly, um, a lot more towards like, hey, you do unit testing. So adding in property testing, which basically expands the surface area coverage uh, there would, would be quite helpful, right? And, and pushing them towards frameworks like QuickCheck um, or Hypothesis or any of those sorts of things, which you and I have mentioned dozens of times on the, on the podcast, those, those sorts of things help quite a bit to just expand your coverage there. But I, I think with regard to like HTTP2 to HTTP1 and things like that, I don't think we realize that a lot of these things are very simple languages or very simple structural inputs. It's like, um, you know, there's, there's the gang of four, like they, they have that whole book on like design patterns for object oriented programming languages or object oriented systems. And um, there's, uh, you know, Ola, uh, Ola, who, who wrote the uh, Functional Scala book, he, he said, like, the only, the only good pattern in the, uh, the gang of four is the interpreter pattern. <laughs> because everything you do is basically a language, you consume some input, and you act upon it as if it were a series of commands there. And we don't really understand that we accept, like, when we accept HTTP2, that there could be a, a smuggled HTTP1 request in there, and now we're, tr- we're mixing context we're parsing data from two areas and it's it's really just request smuggling all over again i mean it's it's complex and myriad but it's it's the same sort of like schizophrenic parsing schizophrenic access control things that we see all the time unfortunately in security yeah yep everything new is or everything old is new again right that's the that's the phrase you know yeah exactly i feel like a broken record because it is you know it is the case uh, it's it's like uh, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Say it's the teacher, you know. Yes, yes, exactly. It's, it's the exact no, same. No thing. one is listening. Yeah. No, exactly. But it it is very interesting to see how uh, James ended up breaking things and and how and like the actual details of of protocol orientation for for HTTP two. But unfortunately, like the things he's doing are just the usual things that we see in security. I mean, it's, it's just, it's sad that we were back at this place, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it is, it is really quite sad. I, it, his, his introduction there. Right. And I, I'm just kind of combing through the article that's on portswigger.net. Um, and this is what he talked through during the, during his talks as well that are up on YouTube. Um, like his introduction on HTTP two for hackers is good. If you're dealing with anything that, is using HTTP2, you should go in and read it um, because it does differentiate between the two. It's uh, pretty succinctly between, okay, what is the text-based protocol that is HTTP versus the binary protocol supposedly that is HTTP2 that is just text-based represented. Man, I can't talk today. yeah, and then and then how he smuggles that in there, the request smuggling, and then the other like access control issues that he's able to identify from that, and the exploits that he you know racked up. Uh, that was you know because he submitted quite a few uh, bug bounty reports based on this research. To I can't even remember. It was Netflix. It was like three or four different places. HuffPo. There was yeah. A- there was a few other, I, I think there's like a, the CMS behind HuffPo and a few other places. Um, and it was also interesting too, because he's like clearly, clearly issuing like cores pre flight requests and things like this, like things that you, the, the other problem with this is we don't have great visibility and telemetry into our applications. So we don't even know when they're issuing sudden requests to things that, Hey, like in the history of Netflix, we've never, or the history of HuffPo or whatever it was, we've never issued a request to this, like, you know, definitely malicious.com. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't have baselines to know, uh, like, we shouldn't be doing this. We've never done this before. Why are we suddenly doing it now? And it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting to me to see, uh, like, how far we haven't come in, in certain things, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it. yeah, it definitely is, right? And I, I don't know. I, I mean, it goes back to my nihilism on it, right? Like, because I'm like, it, it, it does feel like 
we come a long way and then we, you know, it's what two steps forward, three steps back. Um, as yeah. We push, as we push some of this new tech and does, you know, does HTTP two really give us that much more that, that we, like, did we really need that on top of HTTP one? Um, well, the, the weird thing about HTTP two is it's, it's, so I don't think HTTP two is actually the, the more interesting one. What, where it becomes more interesting is HTTP three, uh, which is quick, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, Q U I C. Um, Quick actually delivers over UDP. It uses a reliable, durable UDP delivery mechanism, and so I, I think HTTP two is just the interstitial. It's like John Wick three and John Wick four. Like the, they deliver no content, but they get you to the end end movie. You know, um, I think HTTP two. Obviously, HTTP two solves some of the server side push server-side content delivery, streaming, et cetera, things that, that we had issues with in HTTP 1 uh, content con- uh, contention. Mm-hmm. But I think the real end goal is going to be quick, which is it will be interesting too. Yeah, let me, let me post up uh, just the Wikipedia article on quick because, it, I mean, it, really, it is. It, it is super interesting how, that, how we're moving slowly along to this new you know, delivery mechanism. Well, yeah, and, and Google already uses it. That's that's what's always interesting to me is like when when HTTP two was speedy and uh, you know and Chrome was really the only browser that that did this. I know there's some there's some before before I hear it uh, there there is some difference between speedy and HTTP two, but um, you know when when speedy was the thing and Google was just sort of testing testing this. It's like all of a sudden we have a new protocol flying over our our uh, wires here internally at our enterprise or, or whatever. And, you know, content inspection or, or whatever is, is just not there. Um, and, you know, we, we have reasonably good rules for TCP and HTTP and whatnot, but now suddenly we're going to have a new, a new wire protocol and a new transport protocol that are uh, very different, and they use DTLS. They don't use TLS proper. So there's there's all sorts of new interesting edge cases. I'm sure we'll find there. And mm-hmm. it's just it's going to be very fascinating to see. But I, I don't think HTTP two does anything but get us to quick. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, an interest. You know, and yeah. What what I keep going back to is what what do we need to so as a as a developer that's it's creating some sort of front end application or front end api like these are all just delivery mechanisms to me right most of this is magic like voodoo behind the scenes uh it, honestly to you know probably 90% of the developers that are out there they're never going to deal with http1 much less http2 or quick right now and so it, it's hard to like represent something like this in a report to the developers that have nothing to do with it, right? Like you start talking to the sysadmins that, you know, are, are running Apache or Nginx Airbox. or whatever proxies or whatever firewalls. Yeah. And, Not, and, there's no sysadmins anymore. They're all dead. <laughs> they're all dead. Yeah, yeah. To whatever CICD pipeline is pushing this out, right? Like or DevOps. And, and so what is it like that? Like what is it that they have to be aware of here outside of there is this huge like, gap or there's these these problems and then this also ends up going back to you know bug bounty research when they when you find something like what what james has done this is novel research it's awesome and it makes us more secure but no one else was aware of it now until like james or you know these other talks came out so where you know how do you protect yourself from something you know nothing about is basically my question um, outside of staying on top of the research. And I, I think that the biggest issue for devs and for, for folks listening here, because, uh, you know, we, probably we have more security testers and, and security blue team than actual devs that listen to AppSec. AppSec. But yeah, I think yeah. it's, it's understanding your, your attack surface. It, you know, if you're, if you're a red teamer or, or a pen tester, um, you know, checking right away if the, the system under test actually accepts HTTP2 and seeing if you can smuggle requests to backend. I think, I think we are in for a couple years of really easy, like, I, haha, I pwned you sort of like <laughs> time for, for red right. team pen testers. And I think so, for. So, so Kettle just gave us another, you know, tool. Yeah. To, yeah. To, yeah. To do that. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think for bug bounty folks listening, like, you know, this is going to quickly become, you know, very often bug bounty folks specialize in like a handful of techniques and they just like apply them across bug bounty programs. And I think we're literally going to see someone weaponize a lot of this stuff and just see if they can spray, uh, you know, internal infrastructure with, with this sort of stuff. I don't, I don't think we're going to, to uh, you know, I don't, are like external attackers going to start doing this stuff? Probably some actors will use it. Probably some, some uh, sorts of, uh, you know, some sorts of attacks will warrant it, but I think mostly we're going to see you know pen testers, red teamers, and and bug bounty folks spraying this all over and and getting easy wins until blue team has enough time to like catalog what's using HTTP two, figuring out what infrastructure is not patched, what infrastructure even talks this protocol, uh, where does it live, how do they fix it, etc. I think that's the real takeaway I took from this, and maybe yeah. that's me being cynical, but you know. Well, uh, and, and as, as much crap as I get get for it, right? Um, like knowing what your application does and what a normal day looks like goes miles, right? So if you're if you're not logging, <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm back to logging, right? I, I always circle back, but if you're not actually monitoring your app and your infrastructure for behavior, you should be, and this is where you should I, like this is where you should start, right? Is Hey, what is it? Yeah, like like what are the indicators that your application would have been hacked, right? Uh, like you know, you, we we talked about that from a forensic perspective. Um, like you know, what are the indicators of compromise? If you haven't put that thought into your application, you know, and into the monitoring and logging that goes into it, this is a good place for you to start. You know. What does it look like when someone compromises a account? What does it look like when someone is trying to brute force, you know, a password or you know, credentials for your application? Uh, do you can you tell? Because <clears throat> if you can't, then your monitoring is insufficient. You should probably turn that leaf over and start looking at other like mechanisms to do that. Yeah. Oh, and I, I see you posted the same link that I just posted in there. Thank you very much, Derek, for, for actually finding that for us. But I, oh, yeah. yeah, I agree. You know, it's funny, though. I was just thinking, as you were mentioning that, Seth, like it was, uh, I want to say probably almost 10 years ago now. I remember there was an app that had this like super fancy uh, at, at the time, WAF. It did all this stuff. Um, but uh the old person's version of doing this attack was um, you would try HTTP 1.1, you might try HTTP 1.0. And then what most people don't remember is there's actually an HTTP 0.9, which is only get and a, a handful of, of headers. And that was it. And a bunch of stuff back in the day used to be like HTTP 0.9, that request can go through. But then the application would treat it as HTTP 1.1 because they it had no knowledge of of HTTP 0.9. So you would just, you basically bypass all of these fancy rules, fancy scanning engines, all this sort of stuff. And it's just like, we're, we're back in the same place where you can stuff credentials or stuff uh, requests into another request because something doesn't understand and it just blindly fails open. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I, I mean, you start, I, I always go back to the, the early days of Apache and like the uh, proxy engines that were built or the proxy modules that were built into that. Cause that's right. exactly what you were talking about. Right. You know, 0 0.9 was accepted and like, and I, I mean the WAFs that initially came out only spoke HTTP 1.1. And so if you, if they had a proxy module in place, all you had to do was request with 0 0.9 and okay. All right. Well, I'll just proxy that along because obviously it's safe. Right. Obviously no one, no one would ever screw with any of that shit. Yeah, who who would pass along a a uh, request payload that didn't match zero point nine? Even though the only thing zero point nine about this thing is the is the vo the version that you put in the in the request line. You know, that's it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it just it feels like we haven't made any real progress in that space. Uh, where you would see interesting stuff is like Nginx has. Uh, if you ever look at the source code for Nginx, Nginx has very strict. Uh, decision trees for mm -hmm. all of it. And I know I talk about formal methods every single time I come on this podcast, but that decision trees are a type of formal method. They are a mechanism for like laying out how you are parsing a problem and handling a problem. And 
Nginx has had less of these sorts of things because it, it handles things as strictly as possible. But, you know, as a dev, it's like you, you have to know what you're, or, or as a responder, I should say, or defender to use OWASP terms. As a defender, you, you really do have to know what, uh, like what protocols are, are flying over the wire and what, what things are actually happening there. Otherwise, you know, without baselines, how the heck are you going to know what your app is actually doing or supposed to be doing? Yeah. Well, I mean, I look at those decision trees too. How many developers are actually looking at Nginx configuration outside of, hey, how do I get this up on you know port 3000 or whatever, right? Like how do I redirect traffic to my application? Most of them are not going to the level of configuring Nginx. They just aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody's doing that on the DevOps team and it's all about how quickly can I expose this? Um, I, I would be surprised if, if even 10% of the installations that are, of Nginx installations that are out there use those decision trees in a proper manner, right? Yeah, but I, I mean, as devs, you can you can use the same sort of same sort of stuff yourself, right? And and like when this happens, we expect this. Just graph it out. But as we've talked about before, people don't necessarily threat model or, or process their their applications in this way and know what it's supposed to be doing. It's just sort of like a miasma of what we do. And that's it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, to your point about the, the blue teamers and the defenders, um, this is probably where security needs to step in. If your organization is large enough that you have, you know, the, the separation between DevOps and developers and security, uh, you're the ones that have to think of this, right? You're the ones that have to go in and say, hey, I know that there is this this separation of duties between these two, you know, these two pieces of our organization. That means that that is a gap that can be exploited, and and this is always what we've done from a web app sec or an app sec perspective, is we're looking for those gaps where developers take the easy way out, or you know they're using a framework or they're using, I mean, basically just doing something as quickly as possible to push out for functional or business sake. Um, those are the gaps that we're actually able to exploit. And it's usually up to the security team or the project team to identify that that gap actually exists and test it. Um, I know, I know that's a lot to put on them, but it's your job, right? I guess. Well, it, it's hard to, because if you don't even know that HTTP two is being consumed and you're, you're just like, I curl my application, although curl will upgrade to HTTP2 if, if, when possible. But, um, you know, I curl my app. It looks fine. Uh, we have, you know, tenable scanning engine in here and, and it does its thing. Uh, and you don't even realize that, th- that there's a whole other protocol lurking there that no one has visibility on um, until suddenly a browser switches it on and everyone's using HTTP2. I mean, you, you can be caught off guard and, and have done everything else right. It's like I usually say, uh, blue team has a much harder job because as a red teamer, I only have to be right once. I mean, I, have to, I can be right across an entire thing, but I only have to be right once, really. Whereas blue team has to be right every single time across the entire structure of your, your infrastructure and the entire structure of your application. And one minor thing, and all of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm exposing something I shouldn't have. I am pivoting in a way I, sh- I, I shouldn't be able to pivot. And this HTTP2 bug set is, is just the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, right. oh, yeah, in, this, in Slack channel too, Rick, Toaster32 was talking about it, right? That you know, hopefully you have enough communications between security and dev to catch those config issues early and early before production, then give them tools to check validate themselves. And I, I think that's important, the, the point about giving them tools, giving them the ability to go in and do that. Um, but you're, I mean, from a, from a developer, uh, well, sorry, the call came in and it just threw off my thought. Um, but from a, you know, a strict like red team perspective, that's, you're absolutely right. You've got, this is always the hard thing about being a defender or trying to, you know, build out logs for your application or develop your application and protect against everything that's out there is you make one mistake and you've, you know, you can be exploited is really what it boils down to that. And this is why everyone wants to be on the red team side of things from security, especially when they get started, because it's fun to pop boxes. It is right. Yeah. Like a nice little, um, 
Yeah, we, we push over people's Legos. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I, I mean, on the developer side, and then I also understand on the other side where you get so defensive because you've spent all this time and you thought you you you've done a good job in developing this functionality, this application, and then somebody walks in and's like, "Ha ha, SQL injection!" You know what I mean? And you're mm -hmm. like, "Ugh." Uh, you know, I have to know everything to develop this. So I'm going to just go depend on Nginx to, to handle everything else because I just don't have the capacity to do that, which is, it's a valid argument, right? Like it's it's a valid way to go about developing an application. So, well, I, I honestly would, would state that uh, if your developers are worrying about the protocol, uh, especially for web applications and you're not like a mobile device or you're not a IoT device or something like that, it's probably an abstraction leak. They should be focusing yeah. on they they should be focusing on what is the flow, what's the what's the request that comes in, what parameters do I need to see, etc. And if they're focusing on like, oh, do we support HTTP two or HTTP one dot one? And again, you're outside of like mobile devices and things like that. Probably not the the like. There's something probably failing in your process, or you're trying to you're trying to like push something off on the devs, or unfortunately, from my experience, they're trying to like upgrade someone who has a device somewhere interstitially that is, you know, yeah. ancient. <laughs> in between, what do you mean anything beyond HTTP 1.0? It's fine. TLS uh, 1.0, that's fine too, right? Like we no, don't no, need no, it. no, SSL v2, right? That's that's, that's oh my top gosh. Of the line, right? A actually, SSL v3. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. that's the worst one that you can you can uh, roll out there. But yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's very difficult for devs. This is outside of their domain of expertise most of the time, and re honestly, worrying about it is is. Uh, I don't want to say we should push this back onto onto uh, server, you know, like actual daemon makers and things like that. But I do think the Nginx approach of like very strictly designed consumption, very strictly designed parsing is really the only thing that's going to save us in these sorts of instances. And we, we should be replicating that across the industry. It's not dev's fault if HTTP2 is supported in here. You know, it's really the, the daemon makers that we have to push this back on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it is the daemon makers. You, th you think about the pipeline to actually serve up an application and yes, the application sitting on layer seven, right? Somewhere along the lines, it gets past data. It doesn't care if it's HTTP one, two, quick, right? Like it right. knows what's input, what's output, you know, it's sitting on top of some sort of an application server that is then proxying traffic from a web server that, you know, depends on the routers and everything else along those lines. And it, it's easy to see where, okay, there's one piece that's in that line to the you know whole request smuggling of, or downgrading from HTTP, ah, HTTP two to one. Like there's always going to be a component in there that doesn't understand it. Right. Like it, mm -hmm. if, you know, and it's probably something that your business or your company has paid thousands, if not tens or tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to implement, you know, five years ago, they don't want to throw it away because it provides some sort of value. And so then all of a sudden you're looking at daemon makers and you're looking at hardware, like your F5 boxes, do they, you know, do they support this? How are they actually handling it? It's not on the application developers to to upgrade those devices in most organizations or even know that those devices exist. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, it's, you know, dependent on all that. There's so many dependencies and there's so much abstraction that's going on in most development nowadays. I, it, it, it feels like, again, going back to AppSec nihilism, it feels like a, a lost cause, right? Uh, it just, Yes, we'll get there, but by the time we get to HTTP two, that means Quick's going to be out. That means yeah. that three's going to be out, and we're already behind the curve. And without throwing everything away and starting fresh, it's hard to to catch back up there. And no company wants to lose that investment, right? No, and I think as devs, the the real thing that you can take away from this is is knowing when you should be issuing requests and and making sure that you're validating any of those requests if you if you are fooled out. I mean, there's really nothing else you ca you can do as a dev. Some of some of the things that uh, you know, some of the things that James was pointing out, like 
maybe if they were a little stricter about redirects and maybe they were a little stricter about what 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 they're processing that would have been saved but like the the request stuffing and the request smuggling stuff that he's showing i mean it's it's difficult to uh you know it, it's it's difficult to actually fix that that sort of thing as as a dev you know yeah yeah no no it goes back exactly what you're saying to the daemon makers to nginx or Apache or whoever is developing that front end tech that's being used, I, I mean, or CloudFront, whoever, right? Cloudflare, what, whatever tech that you've got that that's first layer there needs to be looking at the structure of the payload as it comes in and eliminating that sort of a that sort of a threat. Now that they know about it, I, you know that those those companies are jumping on it, right? You know that it's going to be built in there and at some layer, at some level. Or at some point in the future, we probably don't have to be concerned quite as much about it. But to your previous point, for the next six to six months to a year, it's going to be greenfield for a lot of the researchers that are out there. Yeah, I, I feel bad for our bounty support team at, at GitHub. I feel bad for like hug ops to to folks who have to do front end bounty support because you're going to be seeing this sort of thing uh, quite a bit uh, coming up the next six months. It's yeah. It's also funny. Uh, I so I, I write in Reason ML. It's a uh, OCaml-like programming language that compiles to OCaml and then to JavaScript or OCaml on the back end. I, I do quite a bit of work with it, and um, I uh, I needed to do a bunch of strings processing this weekend um, for something for work, but I was interested in it, and so I was working on it over the weekend. And uh, I realized that the strings module. And string parsing in general in Reason uh, is broken. There's like several several fundamental issues with it. And uh, I started tracing back through the code. And that code has existed for quite some time, potentially years at this point. And it looks like just no one has run into it before. <laughs> you know, So you also can have that effect where we rely on these open source supply chain things. We rely on this open source software. And it does the thing. And then if just no one uses it until you do, um, you also can be, you know, you also can run into those sorts of issues here too, which HCP2 is another great example of that sort of stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, and I don't know. It's all a house of cards at some level, right? Yeah. The, the way that open source actually supports um, the internet at large and what we're trying to do, right? Like, yes, we have large projects and yes, a lot of those are funded, but you'd be surprised at the number of libraries that those large projects use that is two guys that are posting to GitHub that have, you know, daytime jobs and, you know, can't really get to it except on a weekend or, you know, whatever else. And so when something breaks and people complain too loudly that it breaks, they don't realize that they're not talking to a professional, uh, you know, supported developer that's doing this because someone's paying them. He's doing it because he found an interesting project, started something in school, and now everybody and their dog uses it, and then left pad happens, right? That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and there's there's so many things that rely upon unpaid developers, and there's so much there's so much unkindness to, to unpaid devs as well. So it's like, you know, we, we have to support these protocols. People want this support, but then when, they, when it actually comes down to, like, rubber meets the road, there's some you know, college kid, or there's some, there's some person who's working on, on this at night. And now all of a sudden they, they have to figure out how to support, you know, uh, like HTTP two and correctly and uh, get it parsed. And Oh, by the way, don't have request smuggling there either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like that, that was the last thing they were thinking of because they had, yeah, they had their like master's thesis that's due in the next two weeks. And they're like, Oh, okay, well I'll just shove this out really quick. Cause somebody wanted support for it. Um, yeah, it's it it's I don't know, it's it's an interesting problem. I mean, this came up over, you know, over the last week when I was at DEF CON, we were having a lot of discussions about developers that support these open source projects and the software supply chain attacks and you know, taking over of you know, like known projects and the trust that we give to developers. I don't think we understand that a lot of times. Um or to these people that are like unpaid positions. It's just is, yeah. yeah. Again, you know, it's, it's a little nihilistic, right? We make the same mistakes because of the, the conditions that we've put ourselves under. 
you you mean that the uh, the random person who with an anime avatar and uh, like some some reference to uh, to to some sort of like you know maybe potentially semi illegal act uh, whose software I rely upon uh, is maybe potentially not trustworthy. <laughs> like you know, <laughs> I shouldn't build my entire company off of that. Is that what you're saying? Maybe 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 not. Right? Like it just depends on you know. <laughs> Uh, it, it depends on what your threat profile is, right? Like, as long as you understand that that's who you're trusting, that's great, right? Well, I, I, I know supply chain security stuff is, like, super hot right now. Like, the, the, the Mugatu, like, so hot right now. But, yeah, I mean, so it's, like, it's, it's, it's very funny because a lot of the stuff is, like, identifying risk, identifying locations there, identifying uh, open source trustworthiness. But I haven't seen anything that's, like, how do we pay developers to like respond to security incidents for this stuff? Like, you know, the actual thing that will fix this is like reputation systems, uh, you know, paying developers to work on this stuff, paying developers for, you know, maturity, open source maturity more generally. And like, I haven't seen too much that actually wants to deal with that side of it. It's all the like, how do we beat down on open source developers to fucking fix everything again? Those jerks, you know, it's like, well, thanks, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the closest, you know, to, to GitHub's credit, right, the, the, the ability to sponsor, you know, open source devs now, I, I mean, I think that goes, with, at least there's some mechanisms that are there. I, I think partially, though, it, it goes back to kind of this recognition that people are developing this and you are depending upon it, right? Um, especially as an organization and like as a business, you know, if it's critical to your organization, you should probably be like throwing some money at those developers so that when a problem occurs, they have the capacity to handle it. Because if you don't, um, you're at the mercy of, right, this new tool by that James Kettle just put out and the yeah. bug bounty researchers, you're going to be paying the exploiters rather than the developers themselves, which is usually what happens. I think there's more money in bug bounty research than there is in, hey, I'm going to go and fix this. And that goes back to the Hunter 2, or not Hunter 2, the, is that who it is? Uh, the guys that are doing, I think it is, Hunter 2 devs that are doing, hey, we're going to pay developers to fix or pay people to fix vulnerabilities in open source code. Um, but the money, if you look at how much it, it uh, they, they have to pay out to developers, is so minuscule in comparison yeah. to, Hey, I go find this vulnerability and I exploit it at Google and they pay me five grand or I can go fix it for 50 bucks. Right. Like that is the sort of like level of comparison that we're talking about. So what are you going to do as someone that has two hours? You're going to go exploit it. Right. You're going to yeah. go find the money that way because fixing it is, you know, it's going to take away that exploitation factor for you. Well, the, the, the funny thing is it, even in, in, in government, if you look at uh, like, you know, budgets for defense, like actual defense. I don't mean the defense department. I mean, actual like network defense operations, computer network defense, whatever you want to call it. Um, like those budgets are dwarfed, just absolutely like minuscule compared to like, I want to buy all the hot new stuff. Like, give me, give me all the weapons and things like that. Like the, those budgets are absolutely minuscule to defend against these things, to research defensive techniques, to, to uh, you know, make things better. That there's very little money in that. Versus like, I want to do the the open source hotness. I want to I want to do the 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 breaking side. Like, you can make a ton of money in that. You know. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, and this it, it's not a new problem either. No. Right? Like you know, if I go back to my initial like security days at you know the bank, you know, twenty years ago, that that was the same issue that we had with our CISO at the time, as he oh. would go out and pay tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars for like Metasploit, but wouldn't give, a, give us money to actually do research and like implement a WAF properly, right? Like mm -hmm. it was just like, oh, well, this was fun. And I saw this in a presentation and look what you can do with it. And we're like, yeah, but like we have no way to protect against it. So why, why are we paying for this tool when, yeah, there's not the money available or you're not willing to staff up on the other side? No, no, you you have to you have to get all the hot cool things all the time, um, and and that's all that really matters there. No, I mean it's just it's it's the same thing. When I was a dev, um, I remember I wrote a replacement for Pill, the Python image library, and it was like all it did was it 
could take an arbitrary image file and return uh, width and height and what type of file it was. That was it. Yeah. And, and so you didn't have to include all of pill. You just included this one Python library. And I remember a very large multinational co corporation came to me and was like, hey, can you support some crappy format that I didn't want to? And I was like, not a problem. Just issue a PR and, and you know, we'll, we'll get it going. And uh, their response was, well, can't you do that? Like, no, <laughs> like I, I have other stuff to do. Like, I don't give a crap about your like terrible format. Like you go do that. And then I will add it to my software, Yeah, you know? And it was like weeks of pushback. And then finally I was like, I will do it for you for, I, I said something like $5,000 and like, that's so much money. And I was like, what do you, what do you think? Like, this is actual time, yeah. but we're not dealing with any of the actual supply chain issues. We're not dealing with a lot of this stuff. And I, you know, James did great work here, um, but I think it just points to like, there's a lot in our supply chain. There's a lot in our stack that we just don't understand and it just exists and we're going to get in trouble for it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, take HTV2, spin that into quick. Let's go see what else is available because I'm pretty sure there's the same sort of downgrade attacks there, right? The same sort of request smuggling. I'm sure it exists. Um, and somebody's going to eventually get to that, right? Whether that's James or somebody else, I, it wouldn't surprise me if he, he moves on and looks at that next. So. Well, but, I, I, yeah. I was just going to say, I think like even just scanning your network, like scanning all of your web boxes to see if they support HTTP2 and then try like seeing what responds to other requests in there is, is probably going to, uh, you know, it, it, it will save a lot of pain in a lot of these sorts of things. So, yep. Yeah. Definitely. So that, that's the takeaway that you should go with if you're you know, in that space. Make sure that the de developers understand, number one, what their application is running on top of. And then number two, you need to understand as a security person or a security developer what, what exploits are available and what yeah, kind of that asset inventory or software supply chain looks like so that you can, you can fix it when it pops up. Yeah. And also, uh, Toaster brought up a good point in Slack. Um, if you're interested in writing tools, writing a proxy that is quick aware currently, that is trivial to set up and can do DTLS inspection, not TLS, but DTLS, uh, datagram TLS inspection, uh, is, is probably going to get you some spotlight time really quick if you're, if you're interested in doing that sort of thing. Yeah. Yep. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm sure it'll get into port swigger or it'll get into burp suite eventually, you know, it, it, yeah. Well, it's like go no. do it, right. Cause it could be, a, it'd be, it'd be an awesome, in, you know, project it, you know, with all our extra time that we have, I'm sure you and I'll get to it. Right. Well, it's, it's like uh nope for burp. If you, if you've ever seen that, it's like the, the non HTTP uh, proxy extension for burp. Um, it's it's out there. You can use it. I'm sure someone will wedge it into Burp until Portswigger adds it themselves natively. But um, you know, it, yeah. it's it, it's also like there may be a space for custom made tools here, or or fixing Fiddler to support it. Remember Fiddler? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Web Scarab, Web Scarab. Because I, I don't oh, I think God. it'd be a problem to implement you know that in Java. You know. Uh, yeah, no. Old versions of Java, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it, and it's funny too because to this day, like uh, Fiddler still has the best, uh, like, uh, like HTTPS or or TLS proxy uh, like niceties for Windows. Honestly, yeah. there's yeah. nothing that really just like it's push button and and does all the things. Um, you know. Well, you know, it's built. You know. Yeah, yeah, but you, for Windows, so there you go, right? Like, yeah, but, but you have to use Windows. No, no, no. Go go to Mallory, right? That that proxy. Oh that was gosh. super easy to use, right? Uh yeah, Charles proxy. Oh my Charles, gosh. Ah, goodness. Um anyway. but apparently uh apparently Portswigger is looking at uh is looking at this sort of thing. Um, they, they, they have a, a paper or a, a blog from 2020 that they updated in, in June of this year, uh, that is talking about quick. So they're, they're tracking it. I guess it's not, it won't be the, the traditional lag with, with quick, um, or, or with protocols in, in burp. So it, it should be nice. Uh, HTTP2 took a number of years to actually land in burp. So, yeah. 
So, well, yeah, we'll, we'll see when it actually goes. And, uh, but the, the current state, right? Like it's probably a lot of manual stuff to, to test anything that's quick right now. So, yeah. Um, anyway, we have been going for over an hour, <laughs> Stefan, as usual, like all over the place, but, um, I appreciate you coming on and absolutely helping, helping co-host, um, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else right now. I don't think there's a lot of announcements because, you know, DEF CON is no. kind of over. And um, But as always, if you've got questions, please join the conversation either on Slack or on Twitter. We'd love to, you know, have your thoughts, have your input into what's going on with the show. And, um, yeah, you, you can find us there. Any, any last-minute thoughts, Logi, until we before we call it today i was gonna say it's it's always a good show when you and i are, are both like existentially exhausted and tired and like <laughs> stuff brain fog in order to to talk about stuff that's that's always a good show so if it was coherent that's all i hope for yeah I'm, pre I'm pretty sure we will we we were that's what you and i have always said when we were incoherent though <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about I, i'm always coherent always <laughs> but no I, I think i think that was perfect summation there seth yeah. Yep. So uh, thanks everybody for joining today and we will catch you all next week. Um, yeah, but appreciate it. Thanks.